Ingo Tietze had mentioned you and him had a conversation about his chin position when he was singing once. When you sing a pop rock sound, and, and in order to make the right uh, uh, aesthetic balance or acoustic forming configuration, if you want to put it in a science way, you need to allow the larynx to rise. You don't make it go up, you don't pull it up, you just leave it alone and let it rise because of the vocal quality you want. In order for that to be done comfortably, you need your head to go up because the larynx won't have any room if you don't. So when you're singing, ha, shouldn't matter where my head is. Not only that, but if you make that sound in whatever other register you want, it shouldn't involve the tongue either. So I'll show you that. That is, sorry, that is going to be the trailer for this. That's it, just that. Sorted, nailed it. We would like to welcome uh, Jeannie Lovitri. 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 Pardon me. That's all right. Uh, Residing in New York, vocal coach, uh, once, once speaking about you on, on social media, um, it turns out everyone knows you for a start. Um, and has uh, been, uh, let's say, touched by your amazing pedagogical approaches, your techniques, your somatic voice work, um, especially those in the, uh, let's say, classical arena who have learnt to teach stuff that's a bit more contemporary, um, often have great things to say about you. So welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on to The Naked Vocalist. You have an incredible biography that is impossible to remember. Um, so, would you be able to give us, not as much as you've written, because that's too much, yeah. right? But would you be able to give us a little bit of an insight as to where you've come from in this 45-year career? Uh, yes, I, I studied, as, uh, studied classically. The only vocal training I had was classical. Uh, I had one year of college at a conservatory here in Manhattan School of Music. But I always wanted to sing more than classical music, and I was always told, you can't do that, it's harmful, it's bad, you mustn't do that. And I never really believed that. Uh, I had very well-known teachers, and I studied with a number of different people whose reputations were very uh, high. But I ended up very confused, and I really believe I had undiagnosed nodules. And... Um, I gave up studying after, um, well, probably about 14 or 15 years worth of lessons, I stopped. And then I was uh, fortunate enough to bump into the Voice Foundation Symposium Care of the Professional Voice, which was at Juilliard. And from there, I was able to investigate voice science informally on my own for quite some time. And then eventually, with uh, collaboration with some of the world's great 
medical doctors and scientists, uh, and then finally do research of my own. So uh, it was a long and very circuitous path, mostly driven by my insatiable desire to understand why it was that we couldn't sing more than one kind of music successfully. And uh, I learned a little at a time from a lot of different sources over a period of at least 20 years. But eventually I was able to uh, put everything together in a way that worked. And from that, I started teaching. I was doing mostly master classes in colleges first. And then eventually I was asked to develop a course for teachers, which happened in 2002, and that's how I developed somatic voice work. And um, I've been uh, pretty successful with that, and I'm about to launch a brand new version in this year in July at a university in Ohio called Baldwin Wallace University. So it's, it's not been a straight line. It's been literally like a butterfly, you know. And um, I find myself rather amazed that I am where I am because I certainly never set out to be anybody's vocal pedagogy expert, but that's sort of where I ended up. So you never know what life's going to do. Exactly. And is that by any chance, the, is that the Lovitri, Lovitri, Lovitri Institute um, that you list on your website that you've started? Yes, the Lovitri Institute at Baldwin-Wallace uh, will be a new residency for me every summer uh, in July. And we're really excited about that. We're looking forward to it. We have some amazing guest teachers. Uh, we have a Broadway conductor. We have a nationally recognized laryngologist. Uh, we have the head of the Department of Speech Pathology at the Cleveland Clinic, which is a major medical clinic here. Uh, we have an award-winning jazz singer. And we have a bodywork expert who is both a singer and a dancer, uh, in addition to the two senior faculty who are trained in my work. So we're going to have a fabulous time this summer, and I'm very excited about it. With all of your experience, personal experience, experience working with people and study, how does your approach differ to other approaches out there at the moment that are offering um, the same kind of thesis, which is to help people sing better? There are lots of muscles inside the throat, the mouth and throat. And there are also lots of muscles on the outside that you can see and touch. All of them have an influence or an impact upon what we hear out in the world as the voice. Uh, most classical singing and a lot of contemporary commercial music singing requires that not only the vocal folds, but the laryngeal support muscles and the pharyngeal muscles have to be highly responsive, which means they must be both quite movable and rather resiliently strong. Since almost all of that is not deliberately movable stuff, one has to stimulate the movement indirectly through vocal exercises. And when the body is encouraged to function to its own highest level of freedom and health, uh, you also get the best sound and the most amount of uh, responsiveness. The fight-flight mechanism in the body 
is connected to the reptilian brain, the old brain, and you cannot override it through any deliberate amount of willpower. I always say when I'm teaching, you can't commit suicide by holding your breath. <laughs> and so my work is designed to work in concert with the body's need to inhale oxygen and exhale carbon dioxide as freely as possible, and that uh, it works to eliminate constriction wherever possible so that um, the machine can kind of hum along. Anytime you force the throat to do something or you restrict the movement within the throat, you are working against a very deep biological program. And in the long run, it doesn't work. I mean, you might be able to survive singing that way, but it's not really going to be successful for the long haul. Um, when you allow the mechanism to really do all the things that it can do, you're then guiding it by mental choice. That is to say, when I sing classically, I understand the aesthetics of the styles I need to sing, and I sing that way. But when I'm done, I might go into a jazz modality, and I know that those are a different set of parameters. And um, if you allow the body to cross-train, that is to say, if you are like an athlete who does three different sports, um, you can get it to do quite a bit. Uh, you don't necessarily get to do every style all the time at an optimal level because that's not realistic. But you can do quite a few styles at a very high level very efficiently. And um, I think that there's, a, there's something in science, which my, my husband is a retired scientist, who taught me about Occam's razor which says that the simplest scientific explanation is the one that's accepted until there is a simpler one. So my work is very simple. I only have three components uh, in the sound, uh, which are register-based components, then uh, two vowel sound configurations, and I work with the posture of, in the body and, and a, a way of using breath in a deliberate way. That's it. Everything else is a variation on that theme. Wow, that's very interesting uh, and quite quite concise when he just threw it at you. At, <laughs> yeah, at nowhere. At nowhere. Um, you mentioned you mentioned the breath, um, uh, which we'll come to in a bit, as as we we wanted to talk to you about that. But you mentioned about two different styles. So so, what's your opinion? Let's say of uh, I'm going to take a female singer as an example because they can go to such extreme high pitches as a coloratura soprano, let's say, and would spend a lot of time up there um, and then have the desire to come down, be a little bit of a belter in some kind of Broadway style maybe, or maybe just something really straight out of pop. Um, how realistic is, is it for someone to be able to switch between those styles instantly or do you feel some styles um, and transitioning between them actually requires a lot more calibration than just choosing? You cannot be a lyric coloratura who sings Bellini and also sing high rock belt at the same time. That's not possible. That's like being a long distance runner and a sprinter at the same time. Doesn't work. 
but you can sing quite effectively as a soprano and also turn around and sing in another style, provided that you don't only do one thing with your voice when you're not singing, that is to say in terms of exercise. A lot of this depends on the ex use of exercise functionally. So for instance, Okay, I'm 67, I'll be 68 in April. I have a left vocal fold paresis, and I can do those without warming up. I haven't sung in days. So, do I have some kind of weird larynx? No. Yes, you do. I don't. Now I know. And I have normal functional behavior. I just happen to have been someone who would would not give up one thing for the other from the time I was fourteen when I started taking lessons. Uh, however, if I were working as a singer, and I was singing either one of those styles as a predominant behavior in music in the world. That would not be so easy. So the limitations have to do with the realities of work, not so much with the capacity of the human throat. The somatic element of the work is about cultivating really high levels of auditory and kinesthetic feedback while you're in the middle of making vocal sound. It, I, not that I have ever, mind you, in my life been on a surfboard, but I think it's like being on a surfboard because in being on the surfboard, you are having to contend with not only the board and your body, but the wave and the movement of all of that constantly, moment, 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 and that's how we sing or really speak, but we don't necessarily think about speech unless we're doing uh, theatrical speech. Um, so, how do we help people develop better acuity of what they feel and what they hear through lessons? And, if we assume that everything from the middle of the roof of your mouth back is not meant to be moved deliberately, at least not in a beginner for sure, how do we get responses in those muscles to occur spontaneously. And there are ways to get that to happen, and that's what the exercises are in my second level of my work. I have three levels. The first is basic stuff. The second is much more involved with exercise as a stimulus to produce a response in the vocal system. And the third level is about vocal health and unusual problems that would arise in long-term work with a variety of people who would come to someone for lessons. That makes a lot of sense. So you say you've got three stages there. Um, and it's the middle one you say about the response, the, the stimulus, the indirect stimulus. Because um, I guess you could say that, and I don't want to bring it all the way back to this again, but there are, a, there are other approaches that would say that that's what they do as well, is, is, is stimulate um, a muscular response for the singer, so that then it produces a, uh, um, a change and then that change can hopefully then stick after a little while. But 
Um, what kind of, if somebody was going to look to, to, I know it's a very, it's a, it's a complex uh, program you've got here and it's, and, it's, and it's not something you can talk about in two minutes, but if, there was, if somebody's out there thinking, yeah, I, I like this lady and she, she seems to know what she's talking about, what could I do to help myself as a singer and, and stimulating myself vocally if I just wanted to um, dip your toes in, dip the, my toes in. in the water. Yeah. You have to understand the uh, mechanism of registration because a registration change is a vocal fold change and you are then uh, eliciting a difference in the source of the sound. Uh, registration is the primary driver of the difference between classical singing and other styles of singing because it does not deliberately incorporate a use of the upper register in order to produce a singer's format. Um, contemporary commercial music is miked and sometimes too much resonance gets in the way. Resonance is a byproduct of production Registration change is production. So if you don't understand the mechanisms of registration, actually nothing else works really well. Uh, registration controls the airflow parameters. Uh, it controls the amount of open-closed quotient in the vocal folds. And uh, it actually has a profound effect upon the vertical laryngeal position in the throat. It is actually, in fact, one of the few direct things that someone could do that is not a manipulation. Um, so in order to dip your toes in the water, you have to be able to hear basic distinctions in the acoustic output. That is to say, you have to be able to tell the difference between ah and ah because one is chest dominant and the other one's head dominant. If I sing, <clears throat> somewhere over the rainbow, that's different than if I sing, somewhere over the rainbow. And the difference is registration. That affects the volume. It affects the vowel sound configuration or the form uh, envelope. Um, but I don't need to know about any of that. I just need to understand what the pressure is that I'm putting on my throat and the muscles in my throat. Uh, most of the people who teach belting by manipulation ran out of options. Like they wanted to belt and maybe they could a little, but they didn't get very far. And then they decided they would do something to make the belt work. So they would squeeze or push or constrict or retract or hold, and then they could get an effect that was like a belt sound or a classical sound. But because they were making the throat do something instead of allowing the throat to do something, they also shut off the ability for the mechanism to respond to emotional difference. So you have a lot of singing at very high levels that is completely unemotional. I mean, they could be happy or sad or frightened and you can't tell because it's all just loud. And that's not what singing is to me. You mentioned there about 
awareness and seeing as becoming more aware of what's going on. And that actually we're doing things oftentimes uh, which aren't the most efficient way of doing things. Uh, would you, I mean, because I, I see that a lot in pop music and I feel like it comes from a place of copying, uh, mimicking singers that are doing things out there at the moment who are successful. So young singers mimic and then they grow into older singers that are still doing the same things. And I feel like there's a lot of tension, a lot of unnecessary tension going on and maybe not just because of awareness. Um, awareness and motivating to not do certain things. Yeah, it's sort of like having Donald Trump as president. It's really pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to comment. Uh, yeah, that's all right. Um, most of this information is not readily available because a lot of it is, um, I guess you would have to call it holistic as a point of view. The, um, a lot of the work that I did in my background was in what you would have to call humanistic psychology. And it comes out of a rather feminist point of view, which is to honor the body and to respect the body and to treat the body with high regard as something that um, needs to be well taken care of. Uh, the idea that empowerment comes from within and domination comes from without is an, a large component of my work. Um, the idea that you have to beat your enemy up or you have to make someone subservient to you in order to be, able, to be powerful or that you have to diminish someone else in order to make yourself look good. Those are very old patriarchal ideas that are not useful anymore. And this way of working says you need to take time, you need to go slowly, and you need to wait for your body to get there. In the sense that you would plant a seed and wait for it to grow. Now you might want that little tree to be 10 feet tall next week, and you might give it lots of food and lots of water and put it in the sun, but that isn't going to make it get there. So in the oldest school of classical singing, you develop the voice over five to ten years worth of training. The idea in pop music that you just flip a switch and then make the sound is based on ignorance. That's never how it's been, and it isn't how it is now. But we are always working for effect. A young artist can't possibly know who he or she is as a voice until they have worked hard on vocal production for a minimum of two years. They don't know what they want to say and they don't have an instrument in which to say it. So the job is for the teacher to support the serious singer over a long period of time. Um, it's not unheard of in classical singing to take two years to change from being a tenor to a baritone or a mezzo to a soprano. Um, and sometimes twice as long as that if you're going to go from lyric material to dramatic material. So that's also true if you want to be a high belter. You don't start out being a high belter if you've never belted before. 
And most of the problems that people get into are trying to do too much too soon. Um, they don't have the physical stamina to get where they want to go or where they hear in their head. And again, I relate this to sports and to dance. You don't do the Swan Queen in Swan Lake at 18 years old, no matter how good you are as a dancer, because your body doesn't have that stamina. Um, if you're going to do long haul anything like a marathon, you don't just run around the block a few times and then go run 26 miles. So high level sustained pop, rock, gospel, R&B, country singing, which places a high demand on the mechanism, what they call a high vocal load, requires training over a long period of time to gradually cultivate strength in both the vocal mechanism and the body, that is to say the ribs, the belly, and later the back. Um, people who do that grow into their technical capacity over a period of five to ten years. And within that context, they can go pretty far. So I think I'm the only person who talks about those things. And, um, you know, the, the music business is still dominated primarily by men. Most of the producers, most of the record producers, record company executives are men. And to a large extent, they're still interested in what sells because it makes a lot of money, and that usually goes toward what's sexy. So um, there are very few women in the music business that are powerful enough to hold their own. Taylor Swift is one. Uh, Alicia Keys is one. Um, there are a few other people who are able to say, oh no, not your way, my way. Um, but I don't think that you're going to find holistic, gentle, kind, respectful mindset in that world because it's driven by money. And my work isn't driven by money. It's for the love. Yeah, it's actually for the artistry, uh, to respect the person, respect their voice, respect their body, respect their artistic goals, and respect uh, the, the process as a process. So uh, it gives people a sense of relief to understand that no matter what exercise you do, it's very rare that it's going to produce an instant result, which is long-lasting. That's like saying, Again, if I, if I run around my block a few times, then I can go be in the Olympics. That's just not real. And that's also why it's very easy for people online to sell their wares. Oh, buy my tapes and you can learn to sing great in 10 lessons. Well, you know what? You can't. Because you need an experienced eye and ear to look at you and listen to you while you sing so that that person can say, you know what, this sounds great, but you're doing it the wrong way. And, and because that's process-oriented, sometimes my students sound worse before they sound better, because I have to fix the way they're making the sound. And while I go through that, the voice gets disordered, and that can be frightening. So I need to be able to do a lot of support and reassurance of the psychological and emotional aspects of singing because artists are very vulnerable and I honor that. Um, I don't want someone to do something they're afraid of. I want to give them a reason why 
it's all right to feel anxious and try it anyway. That's very different. Mm. So how would you approach it then? Let's say, let's take that situation. I know I've been in that situation where I've thought to myself, I've got an artist here who kind of needs to backtrack a little bit listening to them, but it's just not an option, um, being that they're in the middle of a tour um, or something really unstoppable. Uh, have you found yourself in that position before and still had to take the same cause of action or did you really have to just go against what uh, you were thinking? No, because if I'm working with somebody who's in a Broadway show, which I frequently am, um, I can't make them suddenly stop singing what they're singing because they have eight shows a week to sing. But there are compensatory gestures which you can uh, uh, provoke through exercise in each lesson that allow the mechanism to recalibrate itself and to um, gradually re release tension. It's it's similar to the work of, of Mushy Feldenkrais. I don't know if you're familiar with Feldenkrais work, but Feldenkrais work is very small and very subtle and quite repetitive, but it has a profound effect and he says it worked on the uh, central nervous system and the neuromuscular responses, and I believe that's true, although I have to just take his word for it. Um, uh, you can actually produce quite a bit of change in one lesson if you know what to do. The, the rub is that it takes a long time to learn not only what to do, but how to do it. And... Uh, what amount every every aspect of the choice is like a remedy so it, it's like being a doctor who not only knows what's wrong with you but knows what kind of medicine you need and also how much of each medicine you need and how often you need to take it and that's what takes years of experience for doctors to to know and then there's still some tweaking of the dosage and the uh, the uh, how the medicine is working or whether it needs to change so that's the same with exercises um, with the people in Rent, say, when they were working with me, uh, who might have had vocal fatigue or muscle tension dysphonia issues, after a while, they would be able to go back every day to the show and notice each day it was easier to sing, each day it was less stressful, each day they had less fatigue, but they never stopped being in the show. So uh, the, this, the point of this is not to say to a person, oh, you know, take off six weeks and recalibrate your voice. That's rarely necessary. Um, but the alternative is not to say, well, I'm going to throw my standards out and just do something in the moment and make you sound a little better for now. And in the long run, they end up even worse off. And, and then people can't trust you. I have to be able to tell the truth and I have to be able to stick to what's for the highest good of the person's voice over, over the long haul, regardless of whether they like me or come back to me or not. Otherwise, I don't have any integrity as a teacher or as a person. And I, I can't teach that way. I have to tell the, the truth in a compassionate, kind, and uh, very direct way. And the, then the artist almost always is, is going to have to make the choice, yes or no, I want to do this. And I would say almost all the time they do want to do it. Because anybody that's really an artist, we're all happy to be, you know, making a lot of money and be successful. 
But most people who are really artists do care about their art, and that means they have to care about their bodies and their throats. In great answer. Mm, mm. Brilliant, brilliant. Wonderful. So I was talking to, uh, to, to bring you on to a subject that I think would be interesting, uh, especially as an experimental thing for singers to do, uh, is uh, uh, Ingo Tietze had mentioned you and him had a conversation about his chin position when he was singing once, because you guys are also bezies. I mean, you know, so we... we we, we all hang out together. We don't, but, yeah, you know, nice. you know, um, but... Uh, yeah, I've known Ingo a long time. Ingo stuck electrodes in my larynx, so we know each other rather well. You were about the only person who said yes, weren't you? Well, no, Steve Austin said yes. Oh. There were too many of us. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Wait. That was the Vibrato study, which was a really, really, really interesting and completely terrifying thing to do. But it was phenomenal. And um, Ingo and I have had a lot of conversations, and uh, we both respect each other's work enormously. Uh, I consider him one of the most brilliant voice minds on the planet, and uh, I'm grateful to have his um, professional friendship in my life long, for a long time. Um, let me just say that the constrictor muscles, that is the muscles that we swallow with, there are three sets, the top and the middle and the bottom. And um, in most cases, you don't want to use them when you sing if you can avoid it. A lot of pop rock, screamy, belty stuff constricts the throat, uh, and there are all kinds of ways for the sound to be constricted. So, I can, so hello, how are you? It's good to see you. I can talk like that's called one kind of constriction. And then I can talk like this. Oh, hi, how you doing? I can talk to you like that. That's another kind of constriction. And now I can talk to you like this. Oh, oh how you doing? <laughs> that's another kind of constriction. There's millions of different ways you can get those muscles to pull, squeeze, hold on, grab, swallow, retract. I mean, the, we have about 25 words to describe sound that's essentially bound up, stuck, held, swallowed. All of that is that the swallowing muscles are involved in making sound, and they don't need to be. Um, when you sing a pop rock sound, and, and in order to make the right... Uh, uh, aesthetic balance or acoustic forming configuration if you want to put it in a science way you need to allow the larynx to rise you don't make it go up you don't pull it up you just leave it alone and let it rise because of the vocal quality you want in order for that to be done comfortably you need your head to go up because the larynx won't have any room if you don't so when you're singing ha that but if you make that sound in whatever other register you want it shouldn't involve the tongue either so I'll show you that <laughs> this is that is sorry that is gonna be the trailer for this that's it just that sorted nailed it Ingo did that once but it wasn't quite as animated <laughs> I have to say. So you see, if you're gonna if you're gonna go up, I don't know. I'm not in great shape at the moment, but <clears throat> oh baby, I love you, baby. That is not the same as oh, I love you, baby. They're completely different. Both of them are freely produced. 
I don't have, it doesn't matter where my head is. So yes, it's good for your head to be level most of the time, but if you're going to do a little bit of belty stuff, you might lift your head up. And if you're going to sing something that's a little darker and heavier, you might pull your head down a little. But you have to leave your neck out of it, and your jaw has to be loose, and your face has to be alive, and the inside stuff has to respond as well. In classical training, there is a school of pedagogy called Boca Chiusa, which is the old Italian school, where you learn to sing with the mouth closed. It's like being a ventriloquist. I don't have to open my mouth a lot. But you cannot do that if you're belting. It won't work. It just isn't possible. Um, however, you can sing a belty sound that's quite wide, which is the easiest way to go. Ah! But Patti LuPone goes, ah! well, both of them work. So there's more than one way to belt. None of them involve being deliberately nasal. None of them involve deliberately squeezing, retracting, or pulling anything in the throat. That whole thing about retracting the false folds and constricting the aryepiglottic sphincter and holding the larynx down or pulling it up is nuts. Nobody needs to do that. But that is a very common methodology, and it's based on the person who created it who didn't sing well in the first place. So that's too bad. Um, people need to take the context seriously. Um, I have a video posted on my Somatic VoiceWorks site which I made several years ago with a paresis singing a Bellini uh, excerpt from a Bellini aria, a jazz tune, and a rock and roll song. Now, I'm not a rock singer. I'm not a jazz singer. I'm a classical flash music theater singer, and I'm now not young at all. But I can still sing like a person sings when they are fairly young, like youngish in spite of my limitations, because I have a respect for my instrument and I ask it to do what it can instead of forcing it to do what it can't. So philosophically, that's a big deal. And that is not very common, even in very high-level university conservatory programs. A lot of the emphasis is on make the sound, make the sound, make the sound, make the sound, make the sound. And I'm interested in communicate, 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 be happy, feel good, like singing. Really interesting. How, how, do, you, how, do, you bridge, how do you bridge that in, re, in real life? How do you bridge that gap? You need the, the, we must keep, because, the reason I say that is because in the studio there's often frustrations that come with an attachment to technique and changing the voice. I understand that too much of one is going to be too much of happiness while singing may not give us the progression that we need, whilst too much of attention on uh, being right is going to take us the other way. But how do you find that balance between the two with singers you work with? Well, first of all, I think that people who are not comfortable with this point of view don't stay with me. They just go somewhere else. If they're interested in a quick fix or squeeze, manipulate, push, they don't stay with me. The people who have stayed with me, and I have many of them who have been with me for 10, 15, 20, even 30 years, have the same philosophy that I do. They don't want to hurt their voices. They don't want to sound like somebody else. Uh, they want to sing the way they want, and they want their voices to be strong and flexible and healthy. And so they will stay with what I'm asking 
when I work with young people and they are not familiar with this, I try to relate it to something else they know. So I ask, you know, do you do sports or have you ever studied dancing or do you play an instrument? Because anybody who's done anything that takes place over a long period of time knows they don't get to be a great dancer or pianist or even a, a great cook in six weeks. And I relate the process to that and say, you're here to work on your voice so that it works for the rest of your life and to discover what you want it to do and then get it to do that in a healthy, free, viable, honest, authentic manner. And if they have any other aspect of their life that they have worked on over time, uh, then that helps because they get, oh, and you mean this isn't going to be like take 10 lessons and become a star on American Idol. Not with me. And actually because I, I have been blessed. I've never advertised for students. I don't promote myself at all. I have no promotional materials. People come. I have a very busy studio all the time. So there are a lot of people who are willing to undertake the process in a serious manner and who want to learn to do the kinds of things that I do efficiently. The good news about my Somatic Woodsworth training program is that I have discovered, much to even my own surprise, that this information transfers very well into the hands of other people who teach. And um, they report to me that not only are they teaching better and enjoying their teaching more, but their students are happy and their students are getting work and students are getting even in colleges, they're getting cast in shows and things like that. So to me, that's what makes me happier than anything, is that I have empowered the teachers to empower the students so that they sing the way they need to in their lives. That is my greatest happiness and my greatest compliment is for somebody to say, oh, I love your work. It has helped me sing in such a better way and teach so much more better and effectively that I, I'm just thrilled. That's all I want. And um, I know, because I see, that people who have been doing this for 10 years are really excellent teachers because they learn to listen and they learn to look with very highly developed perception. Even the speech pathologists who've done this work say that it helps them in their speech pathology work and the speaking voice people who come, who are Linklater or Fismaris people, find that it's helpful in the work with their, their uh, speakers. So, um, is that, does that have anything to do with me? Not really. It has to do with the body. It has to do with the fact that the body behaves best when we respect its functions. And then, in anybody's hands, the work works. I always tell people, I didn't make up any terminology in my work, and many of the concepts that I use have been around for 150, 200 years. All I did was organize it, and I organized the second level is all about what kind of exercise are we going to choose, why are we going to choose it, what do you expect it to do, and when it doesn't do that, why doesn't it do that, and then what are you going to do about that? so that people can think deductively and then create exercises functionally for each student in each lesson as needed. So there's no cookie cutter anything in it. And uh, that allows the person to have a structure that's 
very clear but flexible. The vocal principles are the same for everyone with a throat, and they're unique to every person in every lesson. Awesome. Uh, so if, if somebody would like to uh, find out a little bit more about that workshop, how to even get on it, how to discuss it with you if they're interested, where would you direct people to that information? Well, we have all of the uh, data available of how to look at the brochure and how to go on the site for registration on both my website, which is thevoiceworkshop.com, and on somaticvoicework.com. Uh, the links to the brochure at Baldwin Wallace are there. And um, we just did the first full training of all three levels in Toowoomba, Australia, at the University of Southern Queensland. And we will probably be back with the full training for all three levels in Australia in 2019. Um, that's not up yet, but that's in the planning stages. Uh, I also did the first level one training in Brazil and Sao Paulo two weeks ago. And I will probably return there as well. So we're beginning to get international. And there will be some other level one trainings developing um, maybe on the West Coast in the end of 2017 or going into 2018. Um, I do have a blog on somatic voice work in which I write about all things vocal. I have a book in the works and I do have a lot of articles on my website, uh, Voice Workshop website, that are downloadable if anybody wants to read uh, things that I've been involved in writing. That's there. And then there are other links to doctors and um, to Dr. Tisa's work in vocology at the NCBS, the Voice Foundation, many references to others. Um, I, I never want people to think that I have the only way or the best way or the one way. I just have my way, and my way can adjust and change as I learn more. My way is about um, being as clear as I can with what I know now and that might change next week because I listen to the voice scientists and the medical doctors and the researchers and I learn from them and I also am always learning from the people who work with me because they bring me really interesting stuff like gigs of things they're going to do. Um, I've had some fabulous experiences with people bringing me stuff that they've been hired to sing and I feel like, really? They're gonna, you're going to sing that? Okay. And then you got to really put your thinking cap on. Do you have time for me to give you a little short story about that? Yes, I, please. Please I, do tell us your story. I had a gentleman come to me about three years ago. And um, he had been uh, given my name by his teacher who was in California. And before he came, he sent me some clips of him singing um, in um, uh, ah, Trovatore. He was the baritone in Trovatore. And these were beautiful, beautiful operatic clips of him singing. This is a big, very thing, you know. So he comes to me and he says, uh, I need you to teach me how to be a belter. And I said, mm, you really don't want to do that. And he said, oh, yeah, I really do. And I said, but your classical singing is beautiful. I said, I, I wouldn't change a thing about it. Well, I have a gig. 
in, in Belgium. I'm singing uh, some Freddie Mercury songs with the Belgian Symphony. I said, oh, dear. <laughs> oh, dear. And he said, well, I have, you know, I scheduled a two-hour lesson with you today, and I'll come back for an hour in two days, but that's all I have because then I have to go to Belgium. So I said, well, all right. I said, we'll see what we can do. And in my head, I'm thinking, ah, this isn't good at all. But I tried little tiny things, and how is that? Oh, that's very interesting. My larynx is moving. I, yeah. Okay, try these. Oh, very interesting. Now I'm doing this and this and this. I said, right. So we go along, and he keeps giving me feedback, and the feedback is all very accurate. Yeah, that's actually what's going on. Oh, so halfway through, he says to me, wow, this is really different. I said, believe me, it's really different. Are you okay? He said, yeah, it feels great. I love it. <clears throat> okay. So I worked through the whole thing, and by the time he was done, you would never have imagined that this guy was an opera singer, not in a thousand years. And I said, are you happy with this? Yeah, he said, I feel like I could sing here all day. Good. <clears throat> so, he goes away. He comes back two days later. He sounds the same, only better. He said, oh, I've been practicing this, and my this is over here, and my that's over there. And I'm, yeah, that's all true. So, we get to the song, and then we sing. I forget which one it was, but we were singing. And, and I said, no, that's too square. I said, you can't sing it like that. It sounds like Mozart. So then we worked on the style, and we worked on the slides and the glides and the, and the stuff. And at the end of it, he was thrilled, and I was utterly amazed. So I said to him, how is it that you've taken to this so well? And he said, well, all of my training has been functionally based. And I said, well, you're a very lucky guy. I said, because I can't think of anyone else who had that kind of an operatic sound who could have turned himself to a whole other quality of tone in two days. So I said, when you're finished with this queen gig, what are you doing next? And he said, oh, I'm doing pearl fishers. And I went, ah! So I said, do me a favor. Take at least two weeks to come out of what we've just done and go back to your regular normal vocalizing before you sing. And he promised me that he would. So coincidentally, about a month later, I was at a conference here in New York. And a woman approached me because she saw my name tag and she said, I have to talk to you. And I said, okay. And she said, I'm the person who sent you blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, I want to shake your hand. I said, what a finely trained voice this was. He was delightful to work with, but he really understood his machine. And she said, oh, yes, I was functionally trained too. And she said, he was really thrilled with the work you did with him. It was exactly what he wanted. Now, I tell this story for several reasons, because first of all, his training had nothing to do with me. I was able to get him where he needed to go because he was well-trained functionally, and he understood the things I was asking him to do. This is how it ought to be if the profession was that way. Whatever approach his teacher took was her own. I don't know what it was. But she talked to him in intelligent terms that made sense in his throat and body. His posture was great. His breathing was great. So then it was a question of my knowing 
how those sounds that are not classical are best produced and coaxing his throat toward those sounds. If that were true, more people could sing more styles comfortably and authentically, and we could go on to other kinds of discussions. But as long as people are teaching manipulation and nonsense and using voice research as a marketing prop, Oh, my method was published as research, therefore it's real. No, therefore it's just published as research. Um, we can't move past the point we're at. And so I think a, a lot of the reason why uh, I get invited to go all over the place is because I talk to people in common sense terms, plain English, and I help them find out what it is their throat wants to do today. And I give them a, a, a map of how it's going to, over time, it's going to develop. And, and that is something that a lot of people are willing to accept. You know, if I teach you how to plant a tree and tell you this is how much water it needs, this is how much light it needs, this is how much food it needs, and you take care of it for the next six months, it'll grow into a tree, because it will. So that's, that's sort of the essence of my work. The singing is definitely more exciting than watching trees grow. <laughs> so. Kind of tree, yes, I suppose so. <laughs> yes, what a great way to end the interview. So, thank you, Steve, of course. for wrecking it. Of course. Um, uh, Jeannie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, what we'll do, we'll do, we'll put, we'll put links to all your stuff in the blog post, so for any listeners who are keen to find more about you, they can go to thenakedvocalist.com forward slash podcast and they can find this episode and all of the supporting blog information. But for now, thanks so much for joining us. Hopefully we'll see you in person somewhere if you end up bringing all your stuff to the UK or if we just take a little bit of a jolly to New York or something. Well, we are in a kind of early discussion of bringing it to the UK. Um, it's It might be possible, so that would be nice. I'd love to be able to do that. I love the... Uh, london scene and i'd love to be there so um, i'll let you know thank you so much for inviting me to be on the program i am delighted to have been your guest uh, i think it's a great program and i think it's going to be very helpful for for anyone who's interested in vocal information to have you as a resource it's great i'll put you on my website too thank oh, you Jeannie. Thank you. much appreciated Honestly. you enjoy the rest of your day okay, okay. thank you good night thanks then